0: The Title Block, episode number 11, Jim Plaxton, part 1. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and on today's episode, I speak with venerable Toronto theatre designer Jim Plaxton. We talk about Jim's transition from architecture to film to dance to theatre, and his time as a co-artistic director at Theatre I bet you didn't know that one and as well as his early career in Toronto. You can find the show notes at thetitleblock.com forward slash episodes. And without any further ado, here's Jim Plaxton. Jim Plaxton is a set and lighting designer based in Toronto, Ontario. Originally from Winnipeg, Jim built a 40-year career working in the local independent theatre and film industry in Toronto and producing over 500 productions while garnering eight Dora Mavor Moore Awards. Jim went into semi-retirement in 1999 and, among other small projects, has been building an artist's colony in Jamaica. Jim, welcome to the Title Block. Thank you. Excellent. So let's talk about your early career, um, or your early life, actually. You, when did you graduate from you, you graduated from high school in Winnipeg? Is that right? Refer, that's where um, you're from?
1: I think I graduated, I can't tell you the year, but it must have been, uh, oh, 1961 or so, I think. No, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, about the age of eighteen, maybe nineteen sixty. I didn't. I never passed French, so technically, I have never graduated from high school. You're among <laughs> friends with that one. That's for sure. Okay.
0: And this was in Winnipeg. And this was in Winnipeg. Yes. And you came out of that, and you started first at an architectural firm, apprenticing. Is that right? What, what brought you to the
1: architectural world first? The need to earn a living, right? And also an interest in in architecture. I I had been considering going to university and taking a general arts course and then architecture. Um, But I was put in a circumstance where I had to earn a living. Uh, Moody and Moore, actually Mr. Uh, Moody, had designed my parents' nuptial house when they were first married in Winnipeg. So where do I go? I go knock on his door and say, I need a job. Bang, there I was. Right. It was that easy. And
0: did you have to So back then it was all apprenticeship? Was there wasn't I guess you could go through the academic stream, but there it wasn't required to
1: it took me it took me a year to get my own drawing board. They gave me a little table in the corner, and it was my responsibility to look after all the files that the architects needed, like uh, they're doing windows, so they go to the file drawers and they pull out a bunch of files on windows, and then they just throw them on top. So I got into filing, basically. So when I wasn't filing, and that was very interesting because I learned a lot of stuff like about concrete, about windows, about plumbing, about everything, because that, that's all the, all the materials that go into a building were there in the files and i had to touch them every time and file them did a lot of reading so it was really sort of self-taught and in my little cubby in the corner i uh, i set up a t-square and practiced drawing looking over shoulders of other you know of the architects themselves so that's how i started then i um i guess my my interest I was going to say talent but my interest was noticed and they said hey you should get involved in our design section building models and doing presentation drawings I was better at building models than I was at presentation drawings you know like fancy drawings so I would start building models and etc etc and I was there for three years
0: that's terrific and you now what made you move to Toronto this was 1965 I guess when you moved to Toronto right
1: yeah uh Again, circumstances, again, personal circumstances. I had it in my head, it would be great to go to Montreal. It would be great to go work with the CBC, maybe, in Toronto or something like that. So I packed up everything I had in my little car and drove to Toronto, en route to Montreal, I thought. While I was here, I said, I'm going to be here for two weeks because I had a, a friend that I wanted to visit uh and while i'm here because she was working i said i'll get myself something to do during the day so i went to an architectural firm that we had worked with out of winnipeg uh called marani ronthwaite and dick and i said here i am you got anything for me for the next couple of weeks and i showed them my drawings they were very impressed they said when can you start i said tomorrow morning great how much do you want to get paid? And I said, well, I'll leave that up to you. And they offered me each week what I was getting paid in Winnipeg every month. Wow. I never left Toronto. Right. <laughs> That's a good reason. And that sort of began a, a kind of a freelance uh, career in architectural design drafting. And I, and I worked around, I had an agent, uh, I worked through an agency that put me in various firms that needed uh, needed people to work with them and i was offered a job every place i went wow um,
0: were you doing what kind of projects were you working on was it a residential was it commercial or everything
1: some uh well with a with a company residential wise with a company called wimpy which is a british construction company not to be confused with the hamburger guy um they <clears throat> they rebuilt london after the blitz and they came up with a construction method called No Fines Concrete. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to build. Uh, they were a construction company. And they wanted to develop, turn it into a developing comp- development company. And uh, they needed to design contract housing that could be spat out like cookie cutters. They built in a factory. Boom, 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 So they brought an architect over from England and... He did a search, found me, and I was the first person that he put in the office. I worked with Wimpy for a year, um, but some of the engineers didn't like my hours. I would show up maybe late. They'd all be sitting reading newspapers, looking out of the window, and as I'd come walking down Atomic Avenue, which is out in uh, Etobicoke, because um, it was a long ride on the bus, you know, it took me an hour and a half. Anyway, um, and I would work until nine or ten at night because I was, you know, anyway, the guy, Joe Giddens, who was the architect, you know, there were tears in his eyes when I was let go. But by that time, there were seven of us in, in the uh, design office. And I worked for the TTC, designing uh, or helping to design, doing architectural design renderings and drawings of subway stations and things like that. Uh, I got into trouble there too because the design uh, philosophy there was keep it simple, boring, ugly, latrine. And I was saying, look, we're tiling all these subways. Why don't we start doing some design work on them? Why don't we even uh, invite uh, art students to submit ideas? We've got to pay for the tile anyway. Oh, no, 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 no. So I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't work out very well there. But I was there for a time. But most of the time, it was like freelance. And that brought you... Uh, in
0: 1967, you joined Film Canada, Cinicity the Theatre. How did you transfer your architectural interest into film? Like, what was the thing that sparked that?
1: In my, uh, in my spare time, when I wasn't working in uh, architectural thing, I, I was interested in making films. I had a little uh, 8mm camera. I ended up buying a 16mm camera and uh, shooting films. There was a kind of, a, at that time, there was a lot of people who were interested in making movies. Young guys like myself. But I bought a camera. Rather than just writing scripts and talking about all oh, this great film I'd like to make, I just bought a camera and started shooting. So I shot films for a lot, of not a lot, but, you know, probably a half a dozen other people. Um, and when Cine City Theatre was opening up, I made a little film for them but to celebrate the opening. Uh, the first film I ever made on my own, the CBC bought. It was only five minutes. I could show it to you, but... This is this is radio. <laughs> so I had an interest in 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 that, and then I was invited by the the, the man who ran the uh, the project to join uh, and start a 16 millimeter department. So I started flying to New York and buying film and looking at, to local kids and finding out who was making what, and so that's where that all started. What was the business model? Was it a co-op or was
0: it a non-profit or was it a... This
1: was a commercial, commercial. distribution company mm-hmm. uh, that operated a theatre across the street.
0: Ah, okay. And did they showcase local artists or did they show international films or American films or anything?
1: I think the focus was, for Film Canada was really art films, mm-hmm. films that weren't otherwise being distributed. Right. Like, no Cowboys and Indians, <laughs> no monster shows, you know, basically, uh, you know, films by Godard and, uh, you know, yeah, well, films that weren't being distributed. Mm-hmm. And how did you get training? Like, I mean, don't well, look back, for right. example, the Bob Dylan film, we would, yeah. I was a distributor for that. Right. Um,
0: and how did you, how did you get your training? I mean, you, did you just buy a camera and learn how to use it? What was your first camera for the, for... What was? Do you remember the camera that you bought? Was it an AriFlex or something? Or?
1: No, it wasn't an Ari. couldn't afford that. It was a Pathé. Right. Oh, right. Okay. Pathé with a big whack and zoom on it. Right. That had a big lever on the bottom. Right. Yeah.
0: Nice. And how did, did you just uh, buy the camera and learn how to use it? Or did you have any mentors or did you train?
1: Well, the, because I had an interest in film and I said, well, oh, maybe I should go and take a film course. I was living uh, near Bathurst and Bloor where uh, in the three schools of art, uh, had a, uh, that was in my local community, uh, and they had a program uh, taught by Julius Kohani called, you know, it's basically Film 101, and and that's the a group of folks were in there taking his course. Um, I think I, and I bought the camera from him. So I paid for the course, bought it one of his old cameras, and um, I think I was the only one in the, in a group of uh, 20 young people that actually made a film for that class, because that was the idea. So, and that's how it started. Okay, now you said here
0: that you started, you founded, you were one of the founders of the Canadian Filmmakers Distribution Center with Robert Fothergill. Yeah. Now, that name is very familiar to me, but I can't place York it. New York University? right. So tell me all about them. Like, why, how did you guys meet, or did, is that something? Uh,
1: Film Canada. Uh, Willem Poulman uh, was the, uh, I guess, the president of, of Film Canada and and Cine Uh CineCity only lasted for about ten years, but at that time, um, there there seemed to be a need, apart from commercial distribution, of a way of collecting. Films from Canadian, young Canadian filmmakers, and putting them in a library and advertising them and getting them distributed on, in a kind of non commercial way. Because our job at Film Canada was to make money. Whereas, uh, and you can't make money with a four minute film. But film societies and film clubs all across Canada. So that, that, was, that was the perceived need. And it was also modeled after the New York, there was a, uh, a New York film cooperative distribution group. And, uh, you know, people like Shirley Clark and Jonas Meckes were head of that or they, they, they began it, you know. even Andy Warhol was in there. But that's a whole other story. So that's where the idea came from. Robert Fothergill, um, I guess, had met Willem Pullman, and because I was involved with 16 millimeter film and a shooter, um, I think the other person involved at that time might have been Lauren Lipowitz, who became Lauren Michaels, you know, the Saturday Night Live. But there, so there were three of us. I think we were we signed the papers and became the first. Nonprofit directors, and then you know, I th- I think we organized a few film showings and things like that. But um, and there was an office, and then I I went off in my freelance world. Mm-hmm.
0: Nice. Okay, great. How long were you with the filmmakers distribution
1: center? Was that a- I wasn't with them? Oh, okay. I was uh, I, I helped. Okay, so I never worked there. I wasn't employed. Uh, it was a nonprofit thing. It was sort of part of my responsibilities at Film Canada, I guess, in the sixteen millimeter department. But it wasn't uh it wasn't a paid position. Okay. You know.
0: And you said yeah. that you had you had shot Lauren Michael's first film, is that right?
1: Oh yeah, Lauren Lauren came to me, uh Lauren and Rosie, and Rosie Schuster, came to me and said, Will you shoot our film? And I said, Sure, what's it about? And it was about um what was it called the green hornets was the name of the film and it was uh two parking attendants parking meter people people who put parking tickets on tags on cars and one was an efficiency guy and the other was a kind of walter mitty you know like he would try to put a uh, I'd take it on a ticket on a, on a car and then a windshield wiper would break off in his hand and that sort of crap, you know? And it was just a little funny light film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cool. That's perfect. Did it get distributed or was it part of the... It went into the filmmakers' distribution center, I'm right. sure. Yeah. It's probably there. If we Google Green Hornets, it might... <laughs> well, God knows what you get at this point in time. Right. So the so the distribution center is still around. This is something I don't know about. So it's still... Di- I, I know of- the filmmakers' co-op is there. Yes, Uh, and whether they have, because that was, that came later. Right. Is this Lyft? Is this the same I think so. I used to, I think the, when it, when it formed, it was the Canadian filmmakers co-op, but the distribution center, uh, might be a part of that or it might be a separate thing. I don't know. Okay.
0: And Lyft just for the listeners, Lyft is the liaison for independent film in Toronto, I believe is the name of that. Great. Uh, So now you're doing the film stuff. Um, what is the connection then uh, some, tell me the connection about between the film industry and then leaping into theater and dance, I believe was the first time mm-hmm. you
1: sort of Well, from architecture to film to theater, uh, obviously I'm going backwards through life <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> many do go there throwing other way. away perfectly good careers um, My first connection with um, theatre, I guess, through dance, was with the Toronto Dance Theatre. When, when the dance theatre was formed, um, I, had, I had friends who were in the dance world at that time. In fact, they, uh, a number of them were working for Cine City Theatre as the, um, the usherettes or the ushers, the people who show people to their seats and sell them popcorn. Uh, and that was the connection there. And, and I was taking a few dance classes just for fun and exercise and probably for other reasons, too, because they were very pretty girls. Um, and I was asked to uh, design a set for the Toronto Dance Theatre, actually for Peter Rondazzo, the first thing. And then I did one and I did another one and I did another one. And then they invited me to be their... Um, what? Resident designer and uh, truck driver and uh, linoleum floor layer, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm. Did you have any... I mean, obviously, you came out of the architectural world. You had your drafting skills. You had your design skills. Mm-hmm. What did you have to rejig in your mind about designing for dance? Was this a natural transition for you? Or did you have to um, switch the way that you were thinking about the space
1: and, and about the dancers? Or uh, Yeah yeah to me the, the the thing and i think this underlies my my whole philosophy and my whole approach to design for stage in that the designer's first job in my opinion is to get the actor on and off appropriately with a minimum amount of horror you know or fear or trepidation um in the same way, when you're designing uh, someone's home in architecture, which is probably one of the more difficult things to do. There are bigger, compl- more complicated things like hospitals and, and atomic energy centers, and I've worked on both those. But designing a home, you're designing space for people so that there is really a connection. Although theater is a little different because it's uh, it's got there's a play going on, okay, but you know it's all—it's like serving the play, yes, but I think more important, you have to serve the actor because um, you got to get him on, you got to get him off.
0: And you were with so when did you come to Toronto Dance Theater? Tell me about that. So was Toronto Dance Theater already established?
1: Had it just been uh, had it just been established actually when I when I came on? There was a there was a company called the New Dance Group of Canada, mm-hmm. and that was Patricia Beatty. And she had done a few um, uh, recital or performances. Uh, but then when Peter Randazzo and David Earl came on the scene from New York, they, all three of them had been trained in New York. Different, uh, I think both Trish and Peter had been at the Martha Graham School, whereas David, I think, it had been uh, José Le Mans Dance Theatre. Um, the three of them formed the Toronto Dance Theatre.
0: Were they originally from Toronto? Is that where they came back? Or? Uh,
1: Peter was originally from New York. He's an American. Uh, David was from Toronto. His father uh, had a button factory, Canadian Buttons, or Canada Buttons. And their motto was down with zippers. Okay. So they, um, after, after, I, after I'd done a, at least two designs for Peter, uh, uh, they asked me to come and be their guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and at this point, they didn't even have a manager. Right. They just had, uh, they had a part-time uh, accountant who came in and sort of managed. Uh, like I was there for, I think their first season, I was there, we had a total of uh, 22 performances in the whole year, mm-hmm. and which was very boring um i was asked to become there uh at that point i i knew how to i knew how to handle 250 lights at the nac and focus them in three and a half hours and cue a show and get it done um i don't know how i learned that but i just learned it because i applied myself if i had a mentor it would be frank Mossing. Uh, Frank Mossy had designed for the Toronto Dance Theatre before I came in. I had been his assistant on one occasion at the Toronto Workshop Theatre because I had already been at the Toronto Workshop Theatre doing a little fooling around lighting with eyes myself uh, with no experience. I preferred to use slide projectors because it was sort of like film, you know, because I could use slide projectors and, you know, light using slide projectors, and then I learned about Alico, and I learned about Fresnels, and I learned about dimmers, and blah, blah, blah. okay, so.
0: And so that, now, uh, so when was the first time you, this, let's um, just get the timeline right here. So uh, 69 and 70 is when you joined TDT.
1: Those are all rough dates. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, Around that close day. enough for rock and roll.
0: Okay. And you're also at, T, at Toronto Workshop Productions. How did you get involved with them? How did you...
1: That someone had someone a friend of mine had rented the space was going to put on a show and i think it was a dance show uh this was before toronto dance theater and uh wanted me to light it and i said sure great and uh so i was basically given the keys john faulkner who was the uh the tech director designer grunt guy uh just gave me the keys, says, the lights are up in the air. Here are the dimmers. So you lift them up, and it goes up, and you put them down, and the lights go down, and uh, do whatever you want, and if you need me, I'll be in Grossmans. And so that was how I cut my teeth in lighting. But I'd also come with five slide projectors, which had um, hand-painted slides that I had done I knew it was going to be the basis of my, my idea for lighting. So, but then I learned, hey, there's other other ways of lighting it was it was yes i will yes i can and self-taught that's how i learned how to swim i Mm -hmm. said yeah i can swim Mm
0: -hmm. and did you so when you were working at tdt as the company manager
1: you were doing freelance design work outside as well no not at that time when when um When I was asked to become the uh, company manager, I hired staff. I hired a lighting designer. I hired, uh, you know, technical people and costume designer. Actually, Astrid Jansen was the first uh, costume designer that was ever hired for that purpose. Uh, It was just one of the dancers putting the, the clothes together. I did that for... Uh, company manager or administrator, I think I was called, and even looked it up in the dictionary to make sure I got the job right. Um, for two years, uh, the first season that I planned, we had uh, about 260 performances. That's coming up from 25 or something like that the year before. And the company's budget went from about $30,000 a year to, by the end of my two years there, it was, it was at about a million.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did the money come from? Was it local donors or was it Canada Council? or all the Everywhere. Everywhere.
1: Everywhere. Yeah, we did a lot of fundraising. Uh, we did a lot more touring. Uh, we had a lot more bookings. Uh, I argued our case very well, uh, the Canada Council and the city and the province. Uh, I brought in a PhD in economics to help me make the case. Who used to work for McKinsey and Company, and in fact, uh, when I resigned from the Toronto Dance Theatre, he took over as their general manager, which is a whole other—that's another story.
0: Yeah. Now a million dollars—a like even today,
1: a million dollar dance company in Toronto seems big. They were busy, yeah. but we've done—we had done Europe. We had done uh, we had done London and Paris and mule house um so it was but you know it was done very very efficiently um like when we went to europe we we sort of piggybacked on the national ballet because they this was going to be their first trip abroad, and I knew the people at the national ballet, and I connected with the people who were doing all there import, export stuff, all their transportation stuff, uh, all their PR stuff. We used the same people. Um, and it was really quite a a coup right. uh, to get money. Um, they originally just turned us down. He said, oh, no, 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 because you had to go to external affairs. And we actually went to uh, my mother was working uh, in Ottawa. She was working for the government. And I said, "I need to. I need to talk to Gerard Pelche. He's the he's the big guy at External Affairs." And she just gave me his phone number, and I called him. <laughs> That's kind of audacious, isn't it? But I guess if you believe in the well, cause, it's not. Who who are you going to call? And uh, yeah, there was a check. Excuse me. You know, and the the, the, the I don't want to call them functionaries but a lot of people they they work they work at certain levels in the government and they're given a certain amount of freedom uh, to make decisions and then they have to take them further so the best place to go is the top so you avoid the excuses you know and you don't have to say it's your job to give us money. Now we're giving you an opportunity to do your job. That's very simple, but it's not easy, especially today. What was the kind of what was the environment for?
0: Because TDT, I mean, is a modern dance company. It wasn't a traditional yes. ballet
1: company. What was the what
0: was the environment in Toronto for modern dance in the seventies? Was it?
1: It was, was breaking it pro- ground. Yeah, it was breaking ground. But it was, the the company had a lot of support from uh, from the press. It was, you know, they were serious. They weren't just messing around. They weren't just kids. They knew what they were doing uh, and had performed uh, on, on stages in New York and things. So they, they knew what they were doing. But they were training a bunch of young people because they started a school as well. Um, so there was a lot of uh, support, although it was groundbreaking. And so we broke the ground, and I wanted to go off and break some more ground somewhere else. So off I went. Theatre design, certainly for sets, I mean, you're working in a three-dimensional environment. And I think what architecture taught me was really to think in 3D. And it it comes from plasticine moulding and block piling and, you know, playing with books when you're a kid by building things out of blocks and books and things or whatever. I preferred not to read the books. I preferred to see what I could do to build bridges and things with them. Um, whereas with theater, you there's also when you get involved with l- the lighting aspects and which is a little closer to the performance aspect. Time comes into it. See, architecture generally, it's it's not a time machine. It's a, it's a function. So. I guess I've always thought of, um, of stage design as a as a practical thing rather than a uh, an illustrative, fancy uh, eye candy thing. Mm-hmm. I did notice in some
0: of the research that I did that you had made some comments uh, in the early '80s when people were listening. when people when the press started listening to your kind of design approach, and you had you had commented that it is possible to build a story around a set
1: and leave the actors out of it. Uh, That was almost a facetious joke. Um, And part of that came, you know, because I, um, because I worked with a lot of new, uh, new work, uh, untried. um, Very often people would uh, come up to me and say, great set, but the play stunk. So, and a play is a very, a a very uh, delicate, Ephemeral thing. I mean, to get it right is uh, even with a good script and good actors, and you know things can go wrong. And when the confidence level drops, um, there's a little spark. I mean, uh, the difference between a, a ball of clay and something that's alive—it's all there. But what is that spark? But my, as far as design is concerned, stage design for me, it has to function. You have to get the actor on and off. Uh, If it begins to uh, assist with the telling of the story, um, I say, well, yeah, sure, go in that direction. But because it's theater and the theater that I worked in you would uh, have your play. You'd go with maybe three or four previews, or maybe a week of previews. And if it's going well, you're up on the boards for a month. And then what happens? It goes to the dump. So all that stuff is ephemeral. And why spend money when you don't have to? So simple is better. And I think some, you know, some things uh, demand elaborate scenery and and uh great spectacle and huge machines and and you know like million dollar sets and things that move and go up and down and you know so th- there's room for that but uh and you know and, and you I mean you could see in some of the films you see right now um that the the technical tricks are what people come to see it's the big spectacle as opposed to the acting and the story is usually Boring and nothing and you're and you're watching Transformers transform. Or monsters come out in three (laughs) D
0: No those are those are all (laughs) I don't know. It's I mean it's even more relevant nowadays, I guess, because the budgets are shrinking. So you kinda have to be people who survive are not the ones that rely on the million dollar Idea, well, the ones who
1: I, I did. I did OD on Paradise. I remember the, the first one that we did in the, uh, in the ground floor of Theater Pass Marais before I uh, took the, the second floor out. My budget was $1,200. That was a big budget. Um, you know, um, I bought 22 tons of sand. And a whole lot of paper, and, uh, and that, that $1,200 also included the people that I had to hire to help build the thing. Um, when we did OD on Paradise in the main tent after the floor went out, when we brought it back, um, my budget was 20000 um, so that was kind of a stupid move to take the floor out, where I had a nice cheap little theater upstairs and a nice cheap little theater downstairs, and now suddenly we had a great big space to fill. And Odeon Paradise was one of those sets that needed the uh, needed the eye candy, that needed the environmental feel, and you know, which even included turning the turning the temperature up to 85 in in the theater and water on the stage, wave machines, all that stuff. Yeah, it was fun. That's terrific.
0: Let's just step back a second and, sure. and talk about how you transitioned into theater. So mm-hmm. you're in TDT uh, in the, in yep. the 1970s. Uh, approximately 1972, was that when you started uh, freelancing as a set designer or a designer for theater specifically? or like what, how, how did you make that transition?
1: Um, I think it was a little back and forth. In other words, I would be doing uh, some dance, and, and then I would be invited to do something for theater. And it, little by little, it became more and more theater because there was, frankly, there was more theater happening in Toronto uh, than there was dance. Um, but I, I I, would do lighting for dance. And I uh, kept my hand in that. And I was lighting for uh, the National Ballet School, for the National Ballet, for independent uh, dancers. Um, Problem started to arise is that when when I started getting reviews and yes, the Dora Mae moore Awards started coming, uh, the independent dancers, the small people, they wouldn't call me anymore, and they said, "Well, we can't call Jimmy. They, he wouldn't be able to. do it. He's too busy and he's probably too expensive." But you know, so I, um, and that was something I had to correct, which I did. I mean I would I would I would be doing a, a show for, for an independent uh either theater or dance uh group or individual for a couple of hundred bucks, you know, lighting the show. Whereas um if I was working at Tarragon, I if I was just uh, lighting, say I might make twelve hundred dollars. Or if I was working for IBM, I might make six thousand dollars. <throat> so Back and forth and back and forth. But it, it, it just sort of grew. And it, was, um, it wasn't me knocking on doors. It was um, people would see what I did or people would say, yeah, get Jim. He's good. And um, it just happened. It was, uh, I guess there, wasn't, there weren't a lot of people doing it maybe at that time compared to now. The schools were just getting started. Like uh, York was really just starting to turn out people. Um, Ryerson, same way, I think. Yeah. Now you did a lot of work, excuse me, with Harant
0: Alniak. Is that right? Harant Alniak. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about how you guys met or your relationship with him and when you guys started first working together?
1: Yeah, he. um, um, At that time, i i had I had a couple of. a couple of friends, <clears throat> um, Mark Hammond and uh, Terry and Tim Crack. And we formed this little group called Fly by Night, Night with a K. Uh, the idea was that we as a group could put a package together for a small company or any, any group. Um, there, it's like a one-stop shop. Mark was into promotion and and company management things. He was a graduate of York, and that's what his real interest was. Terry was a sound guy. I was a lighting guy. Tim was a lighting guy. They weren't making any money. I was doing okay, but you figure, okay, well, let's all work together. And they tripled their income in the first year. So they, they were doing well. So what we had, we offered... Uh, that service and I guess Harant picked it up and he was invited to do a production called Baby Blue 2. Paul had done uh, I Love You Baby Blue which I think they were busted and it was great but they made a lot of money with it. Mm-hmm. This I is Paul Thompson. Paul Thompson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that production uh paid for the down payment on the building that Pasmorey now operates. But anyway, Baby Blue 2. And so that was my first Harant Alianac. I did the set and Set and lights, yeah, Tim did the sound, Mark was the stage manager, uh, I don't think Tim was involved, he was probably on the crew or something like that, but that was the first one, and it um, had a little trouble getting it up on the boards, and we ended up moving it off to the Bayview Playhouse, because the city uh, closed Murai for safety reasons, they, hadn't, uh, they weren't up to code, And they were still in the process of renovating. So that was early days in Pasmerai.
0: What year was this? Like in the mid-70s?
1: Probably, yeah. Maybe it was late 70s. -hmm. I don't have all my chronology all in one (laughs) place right now.
0: (laughs) That's okay. We'll leave that to this. I know. It's
1: 2014. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Fully oriented. And it's August. (laughs) Um, Now, you did a... a, a, I was interested in... um, in the experience you had with Lucky Strike, because you did Lucky Strike, which is herant's yeah, Harant play in the seventies, and then you came back in the mid nineties and you did it again with Harant.
1: Um Lucky Strike, I think, was a production of uh, Factory Theater, um, or maybe it was a co-production with herant because he, um, you know, he's a very independent, aggressive guy who, you know, to get his own work on, he probably, you know, like don't know what he does for money, but you know. Um, so it was a production at, at the Factory Theatre, the first one, and that was the Factory Theatre on Adelaide and, uh, and Church, or Adelaide and uh, Jarvis, that, that space. Um, great fun. Great fun. And it was, uh, it was a Herat play. I think uh, there were probably a page and a half of dialogue, if that, for, for a 90-minute play. It was really more of a dance, like a mime show in a way. Uh, super loud, aggressive music. Uh, lots of lights, lots of little effects. Uh, set in a warehouse. Um, guns going off and people dying, and but it, but it was you know it was it was a cartoon in a way, and a lot of fun, and it was successful. And, yeah, we brought it back, um, took it to New York, in fact. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what how long a gap there was. But I worked, again, with Herant and I worked with him at Toronto Free Theatre, um, did a Did a production of what uh, was called The Blues. I did costumes for that as well, set light and costumes. And that was set in a bar, 1950 New York. and It was just an interesting story that uh, had a lot of dialogue because they said, oh, rant. he can't write dialogue. That's what, he, that's what he does. He speaks long, stupid, dense things. So he sat down, he wrote a play, you know, so he did that. And uh, so it was a more traditional, could have played tarragon. Right, right. No. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, um, For the blue rinse grab. Yeah, oh. right,
0: exactly. <clears throat> um. All right, so let's take this takes us up to the late uh, to the late seventies, early eighties. Now, uh, after how long did it take Mariah to get sort of back together after they were closed down by the city? Was that just a
1: that was a little wrinkle at that time? Um, just they hadn't finished. Uh, I think they'd put in wooden stairs, and they were, you know, so they had to do some work and. and Work was done eventually. I wasn't involved with Passamurai in any direct way at that time. So um, I, whether it was a year, I don't know. But steel stairs went in, steel and con- you know, the steel and concrete stair thing, and uh, and they got up to code and they got their fire sprinklers and all that, so they opened. Right. Yeah. Uh, and
0: then in... I came in much later, yeah, Passamurai. I was going to say then in 1982,
1: mm-hmm. it says here that you, Lane Coleman, and Clark Rogers were co Yeah, I guess it was around artistic. that time, you know, like yeah. I, I, I'm not 100% on the date, but it's around that time. Um, this was when um, Paul turned the theatre over to Clark. Clark, I think, had been his assistant artistic director. Um, Clark's approach to theatre was a little different than uh, Paul's. Paul's was uh, um, yeah, the collective creation. And was, he wouldn't start with a script, he would start with a concept and idea and a bunch of actors and uh, a script would or a play would come out of it, whereas Clark was more interested in playwrights and working with playwrights. I have a playwright himself. Mm-hmm. And so when when he agreed to that, or I guess when he screamed loud enough and Paul said, OK, um, he invited uh, Jim and Lane, me and Lane Coleman, to uh, come and uh, be by his side mm-hmm. What was his reasoning for that? Was that just to share the workload, or was that his a new model for creation for him? I think um, we had worked together once, um, and that was on uh, it was Judith Thompson's play, Crackwalker. Thank you. So we Clark and I had worked on Crackwalker. Um, and that was the, I think he was the uh, the associate artistic director at theater Pass Marais at that time, and it was done at, well, this this one was done in Montreal, so I don't know how that worked. I think he got a job in Montreal, recommended me, and so that was our first first time together, and it was after that, I believe, that uh, he took over the theatre, and then Lane and I came in. And I think we were we were there for a couple of years.
0: Did you guys, uh, who programmed the season? Was it you? Was it, did you guys it was as sort a of a
1: collective. Or, yeah. Um, you know, we would get together in the summer and um, hash it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I had less a, an effect on that. I would be there saying, okay, well, um, which one would be appropriate for me to design? Because I was like a free designer. Mm-hmm. That was making god knows what i was making you know 100 bucks a week or something um so i'm good in-house designer and yeah and that's when we did od on paradise which was a clark direction with linda and uh, patrick writing uh so plays were play writ that's when we did uh alligator pie which is another one brought in an outside director for that um and, yeah, we were we were running three theatres at that time, upstairs, downstairs, and in the back space. What made you decide to open up the main, to, to, to
0: take the second floor out and open up the main space? Boredom. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: it was, I don't, I, I honestly don't know. It was one of the ideas that we were kicking around when we were in a bar, probably, and uh, said that'd be fun. I mean, it's, it's my, uh, my brutal background in architecture. Um, and we opened the theater uh, after the floor was out with, with Hamlet, with the Passameraie Hamlet. Um, it made everything more expensive. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it gave us, essentially, it gave us one less space, but a bigger space. Which, uh, so I wonder whether it was a good idea or not, but it is, it's an interesting
0: space. Because without the floor, with the floor in there, you only have what, 10 foot ceilings, 12 foot ceilings, maybe in the two uh, spaces?
1: Downstairs, yeah. Downstairs was about, uh, you know, 10, 12 foot, 10, 11 foot, something like that. Um, and it didn't even have a grid, as I recall. So it was like real, you know, rinky dink. Uh, and it was also a, a sloped concrete floor, um, which is, you know, and it was designed for horses to bring the uh, the, the bread wagons in, and, and the back space was the stable for the horses. So it had a cobblestone finish, you know, so it was kind of awkward that way, yes. but fun, you know, and when we did our OD there, it was great because we could, you know, just dump the sand on there and build a little wall and put in water and build a wave machine, and so you, you could do stuff like that. Um, so we leveled the floor and took the other one out. Upstairs, I think we had a little more room. I think it was a 12-foot ceiling in the uh, uh, around the periphery of it, and then there was a, a raised penthouse uh, kind of box on top of it, which ran... Pretty well the length of the theater and, and uh, probably another 12 feet across. So there was some height up there for
0: it. Where did you guys like, find the money? Was that a capital campaign or did it come from the city or county council or?
1: not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fine. But you know yeah, found- it. was it was yeah a combination. There were capital grants available, and we got, we got some money. And I think because the building was historic, we got a lot. We got some money to restore uh, all the windows because they were all they were in a mess. And uh, actually, some of them had been replaced with big sheets of glass, you know, thermopane glass. And because it was a historical building, uh, we got the old style. Uh, windows put in and a lot of paint and uh, uh, some of the money went into windows some of the money went into other stuff
0: and so, uh, was there what was the reaction of the community to the renovation I mean there was a um, uh, the press that I read were, was a bit nostalgic for the old Passe hmm. or at least one or two of them Um but just like any kind of change, there's going to be people who are resistive to it. It sounds like it was a good move for the theater.
1: To yeah, make I don't it. know whether the reaction was the physical changes there or the programming changes uh, or a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, I, I found the space very, very interesting and exciting, and I think there are ways um, because when I, when I did the initial drawings... Uh, for the renovation, taking the floor out, I had oh half a dozen or maybe more different configurations that we could use. Mm-hmm. Uh, very exciting space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did one of um, one, one of the Hollingsworths or a couple of them in there as well. Uh, you know, we made a an Italian proscenium theater and had box seating on either side. Hmm. You know? a big, we built a big cardboard, not just a cardboard box over the stage, but we built an entire cardboard theater out there. Right, and had the conceit of you know velvet drapes and the front curtain and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, but it, it still, he's never. <clears throat> I mean, there he'd put a Ferris wheel in there. Right. Right, yes, because you know. could.
0: It's very tall. That's very true. <laughs> well, great. Well, let's talk about um, ODM Paradise. So the 22 tons of sand, I have to, the sand is heavy, so it's not a, an enormous amount of sand, but it's quite a bit, like 22 tons is a bit of sand.
1: Yeah, I think, I think sand weighs something like uh, 130 pounds per cubic foot, so you can figure it out there. It was enough to put uh, about six or seven inches of uh, sand um, in an area probably 40 by 30, mm-hmm. something like that.
0: And this was a George, a George F. Walker play? Right? No.
1: Oh, it uh, wasn't? O.D. on Paradise was written by Linda Griffiths oh. and Patrick Brimer. Terrific. And what
0: was the, what was the, uh, the premise? premise?
1: It was uh, eight people. Canadians on a package tour in an all inclusive hotel on the beach in the Grill, Jamaica. And what happened to them and who they were. It was hysterical. It was funny that it was also tragic. Somebody died. Yeah. And when
0: you when you redesigned it, <clears throat> uh,
1: after the floor after went out. The up,
0: floor went out. What did you have to do? Like obviously it's taller but what did you have to do to sort of was it a complete redesign or? oh yeah
1: yeah well what, it, what downstairs what it was is i um i had uh, uh there there was a bit of a grid up there by that time um and i had long pieces of fabric that were sort of draped from the ceiling so it was you know more like a tent like an arab like tent thing you know so or a tunisian tent um uh, so it had a white feeling. In other words, that was supposed to be the sky um and the sand, and then risers all the way around. And then behind the risers I hung another psych behind the audience. And uh at the very back row between the uh, between the audience and the psych was a paper leaves and things, you know, tropical banana leaves and flowers and colors. And the psych was lit with fluorescent lights, because they were cheap. We had a whole bunch of them, so we just linked them all up, and so that was the sky around. When we went upstairs, um, we had, like, a huge space to deal with. So the first thing I built was a, was a parachute, which is a big, huge dome, and a steel ring, so the whole ceiling of theater Pass Mirai was a, a big circle of uh, fabric. Made like a big umbrella sort of thing, you know in sections and uh, and there was a hole in the center which had a, a cluster of lights that came through that hole, so I had some lighting positions up there, uh, but it also formed the sky, which is good and then we did a um, um, a superstructure of of wood um, which was really sort of a a very complicated rake that went right from the very bottom floor all the way up to the balcony level. Uh, and, and, and that was covered with sand. So it was really more of a sand hill than a, than a flat sandy beach. But it was different.
0: And 47,000 gallons of water, it says here. That was
1: the first one. That was the first one. That was the, that was the, um, the actual water bill. Uh, most of that was out of evaporation. Oh, right. Oh, so, you saw, so over the entire run, you used that much? Yeah, that was, and we, I think we ran for three months. Oh, my goodness. So it was a, uh, well, you could call it a success. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, right. you run more than a week in this town, and you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did it eventually go to Bathurst Street Theater? Is that
0: right? Did it move there later?
1: Uh, I don't recall it ever going to Bathurst. It went We took it to Quebec City. How did you tour with all the sand? Or you obviously- oh, we don't tour with our own sand. No. We, we order it oh, right. locally. We right. get local sand. Of course. Yeah, and We, we took the, uh, the main stage, which is the, the revised version, uh, to Montreal. Um, oh, sorry, to Quebec City. Um, so we had the tent. So we basically put up the tent and covered the place with sand and read the play. It wasn't, it wasn't as intimate, and it was, you know, we still had the same sense of surround. It was only on three sides, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a sort of quick and dirty tour. But, you know, whose, whose idea was the sand and the environmental aspect? Clark, when he approached me, because he was going to be directing the first one, uh, completely expected a proscenium, a proscenium version. Like a standard, there's the stage, there's the audience, boom, and I was the one who got them in that big trouble. So it probably would have been more successful on the road had I not done that. It probably would have been invited to more places had it been uh, more easily staged with uh, carpeting instead of sand, you know. And I've and I've done carpet for sand and other productions, you know,
0: and thus ends part one of my chat with designer jim plaxton next time we discuss jim's later work his love affair with cardboard and his attempt to create an artist's colony in jamaica the music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the band 1990s called See You at the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block ca and on facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to get rid of Video Black and long for the days of a people's box. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.